Welcome to this special Inclusivity in Medicine curbside Console series. My name is James O'Connell and I'm an editorial fellow at the NEGM. Now more than ever, physicians in many countries are seeing the effects of inequity, inequality and racism on their patients' health. As physicians, we have a responsibility to use our unique position in society to act and advocate on behalf of people who, because of inequity, inequality and racism, may be excluded from participating in healthcare. In this Inclusivity in Medicine series, we aim to explore these issues and how they may be overcome. A recent publication in the NEGM entitled COVID-19 and Health Equity, Time to Think Big by Seth Berkowitz highlighted how the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed many health inequities, the roots of which can be traced back to a failure of policy to recognise and address the social determinants of health. They argue that new policies which address the social determinants of health could advance both health equity and the COVID-19 response. Today we are joined by Dr. Jim O'Connell, President of the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Programme, to discuss how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected people who are homeless and what he thinks could be done to improve healthcare for people who are homeless during the pandemic and beyond. Welcome, Dr. O'Connell, and thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, James. Nice to meet you. Great. We'll begin with our first question. We often associate living in homeless shelters with crowding and being at risk of communicable diseases such as tuberculosis and now COVID-19. However, being in sheltered accommodation is more beneficial for oneself than most other regards. How have the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program and homeless balances contradicting health risks for people who are homeless? James, thank you for that question. And I have to admit, it's the first time I've ever been interviewed by someone of my own name. So forgive my uh, confusion sometimes. Not surprisingly, the inequities in the healthcare system that we've seen in taking care of homeless people have clearly been magnified by COVID pandemic. I can remember thinking in 1985 when we first started doing this work and our program was just beginning, one of the nurses who had been looking at homeless people for a long time said that whenever you reach out to take care of a very vulnerable and excluded population such as the homeless, they will show us the weaknesses in our healthcare system long before we realize it ourselves. And this is certainly true with homelessness. The initial thing that we ran into uh, in 1985 was the AIDS epidemic and an outbreak of multidrug tuberculosis. And those two twin pandemics actually really stretched us to the limit and taught us that the shelters, while life-preserving in so many ways, can be very um, dangerous places in times of communicable and transmissible diseases. So we certainly have seen over the years several outbreaks. Certainly when we see the flu outbreaks, we've had Shigella, we've had um, meningococcal outbreaks, and many other different kinds of outbreaks. Hepatitis C has been another one which have always been difficult to manage when people are living in shelters and on the streets. And so we were very frightened when COVID was coming down and we realized this pandemic was potentially devastating to our population, just as it would be to any poor population that was captured inside, such as prison population, nursing homes, and uh, shelters. So we were actually very worried about how to take care of people in these crowded shelters, prevent them from getting the virus. At the same time, understanding that um, you know, it may not be very easily doable in the current situation. And the paradox of shelters being life-preserving most of the time, certainly in the wintertime, and the streets being much more deadly and dangerous, transposes during times of real communicable diseases. And we did not see, for example, COVID affecting any of our real rough sleepers, the people living outside all the time, whereas we saw 40% positivity rates inside the crowded shelters. Thanks, Dr. Conlon. That actually brings us on to our next question. Um, I recall reading in April that 88.5% of the people who are homeless were found to have COVID-19 in a shelter in Boston and were asymptomatic. 
Um, many people became homeless because of underlying medical conditions. So in this population, that figure must have been very concerning. What was the response like in terms of testing and setting up alternative accommodation to allow homeless people to isolate? There had been models that had been formulated by uh, some folks at the University of Pennsylvania, which suggested that the pandemic would be particularly deadly to our population because of the high co-occurring illnesses of you know, psychiatric, medical, and substance use issues. And that the projections were that we'd be high mortality rates and hospitalizations would be extremely high. So we were very, very concerned back in late February and early March about how to prepare for this pandemic and protect our population as best we could. And at that time, what I remember, and it looks like, it feels like ancient history now, even though it's only eight or nine months ago. At that time, we thought information coming from Wuhan was that this was a virus primarily passed by people who were coughing and ill and had symptoms. And so I remember the testing was only available, certainly in Massachusetts, for those people who passed a screening test for a fever, shortness of breath, et cetera. And generalized testing was not available about that time. So we um, initially decided to, and this was our quite remarkable staff, I have to pass all the credit to them. We started screening everyone going into the shelters of Boston. There's roughly 3,000 adults that go into the shelters of Boston. And we would screen people every day to be sure they didn't have symptoms. And if they did, we would send them for a test. And then we had to wait anywhere from 12 to 24, even sometimes 72 hours for that test result to come back. And we were faced with several challenges. One is that the public health standards of physical distancing, isolating and quarantining after you've either been diagnosed or been exposed, and washing your hands frequently are virtually impossible to do if there's four or 500 people living in a crowded shelter. And in Boston, our two main shelters have four to 500 people, and then we have several other shelters that have 100 or 200 or 300 people. So we did our very best to make sure that virus did not get into the shelters. And in mid to late March, we had our first known uh, positive case or a couple of cases, and they seemed to cluster or be centered right around one of our shelters called Pine Street Inn. And the Department of Public Health for the state and for the city, who have been absolutely magnificent partners in all of this, allowed us to do for the first time for us, anyway, universal testing of everybody in that shelter. So we screened everybody that one day in early April, two days in early April. And even though only a handful of people passed the screen or came close to passing the screen, we tested all 408 people in the shelter and 148 turned out to be positive. And of that 148, less than 10%, and that's pushing it, had any kind of signs or symptoms at the time we did the testing. So we were shocked, to be very frank, that it looked like we had an outbreak unbeknownst to us of asymptomatic COVID that was going like wildfire through the shelters. We subsequently did universal testing at the other shelters and found the same 35 to 40% positivity rate, primarily asymptomatic. We did lots of uh, calls and talks with the CDC and other people. And it looked like rather than the pandemic being an iceberg with all the symptoms above the ground, this was beginning to look more like an iceberg where only a few people had symptoms and the vast majority were asymptomatic and quietly spreading the uh, virus. So we generally went into panic mode because to stop an asymptomatic virus in a shelter setting or in a nursing home setting or in a prison setting requires a lot of testing frequently and a lot of contact tracing once you do the testing. That's really interesting. And for those homeless people who did become unwell and did have symptoms, some of them must have needed to seek emergency care. 
uh, for homeless people who seek emergency care, it can often be challenging to, to find a suitable setting um, to discharge them to and, and for them to recuperate. And uh, how has this been managed during the COVID-19 pandemic so far? Yeah, and, and I think one of the real um, heroic stories of this, certainly the first surge of the pandemic in Boston, was the response of the community and the shelters and the hospitals and the governor and the mayor to what was a surprise to us, that large outbreak that was largely asymptomatic. It was clear that we had to get anyone who tested positive out of the shelter so they didn't continue to spread it. And then we needed places to quarantine those who had been exposed and to isolate those who were positive. And that was a tall challenge. And I would urge everyone, one of the disparities that became glaringly apparent to us is it's very hard to quarantine and isolate people who have no money, no food, and no access to the usual social benefits. So we had to provide places for those people to go and quarantine for two weeks or to be cared for for 10 days to two weeks. And in doing that, we had to essentially set up what would look like respite programs and um, hospitals where they could go. We have in our Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program and led by our chief medical officer, Jesse Gator, and our medical director, um, Denise de las Nueces, and really championed by our CEO, Barry Bach, we were able to um, set up two tents outside one of the shelters, pretty sophisticated tents where we could quarantine and isolate people, because as you know, there's no redundancy in the shelter system. We had to find new places. And then we have a medical respite program, which is, I think, one of the places that we started back in 1985 at the behest of the homeless people we were serving as a place where people could go and be cared for when they were no longer so sick they needed to be in the hospital, but were way too sick and too injured and too ill to um, be wandering the streets or staying in the shelters or wandering the streets. They would go home, obviously, if they had a home with visiting nurses and home health aides, et cetera, but they didn't have that. So our medical respite program has grown to be about, in total now, about 124 beds over two facilities. And it looks essentially like a step-down hospital. And we converted one floor of 52 beds of our Barbara McGinnis house, which is located right at the corner of Mass Abbey and Albany Street, into a COVID unit. So we would take those people who were positive for COVID and bring them over there. We had all the full PPE and all the, um, the right things for taking care of people. But little did we know that that was going to be barely enough. So that was filled really quickly. And then with a lot of help, and I'm telescoping a long story here, with a lot of help from the governor and the mayor, the Boston Convention Center was opened and Mass General Brigham set up a 500-bed field hospital for people with COVID. And adjacent to that, we had 500 beds that we were able to run, which was essentially a medical shelter for people who were COVID. And that was how we found the uh, place within the system to, to really isolate people who had the virus. And that was a lifesaver. And that was a way we could decant the shelters, get everyone who was, up, was positive in the shelters out, and then we could continue to test. And eventually, we got control of that first wave of the virus. And I say all that with great trepidation as we worry about a second wave beginning to come. You think um, has COVID-19 exacerbated difficulties accessing care for other medical conditions among homeless people, Dr. O'Connell? Absolutely. What became apparent to us uh, was that prior to COVID, we were flat out. We have a, a network of clinics in about 40 shelters around town where our doctors and nurses are based clinics, one at Mass General and one at Boston Medical Center that were busy and um, really quite energetic. And when COVID came, we had to basically turn ourselves inside out and address the immediate situation of COVID. And we had to let many of those visits that were ongoing 
hold for a while. And as you know, the hospitals shut down most of their primary care clinics. We had to do things like shut down our dental clinic and our dentists began to help us in the shelters. So it was a complete transformation of the system to really focus on the immediate need of addressing COVID. And in doing so, many, many of the regular routine preventive care things that are so important in our world had to be put on hold. And um, that has made us nervous or certainly made us nervous in the beginning because there just simply was not enough room in the system to continue to do that. We also, I should add, you know, in those early days, we also had limited access to PPE. So we had to be careful with our staff as well as the staff working in shelters, how to protect them. And in our clinics, it was very hard to protect. And when the hospitals themselves began to shut down their regular primary care clinics and their operating theaters, we realized we were probably caught in the same boat we had to shut down as well, much to our chagrin. It's frequently reported that COVID-19 has caused a lot of stress and anxiety for people, partly due to the unpredictable day-by-day way of living that now exists for most of us. In your opinion, has anxiety been particularly prominent among homeless people and have additional supports been, been needed for them? I have two contrasting views on that. One is that the people we care for, especially those who are rough sleepers sleeping outside, many of them see this virus as nothing but another one of the many, many struggles that they have when they're on the street. And in that sense, they weren't particularly more anxious about that than anything else. They know that it's dangerous out in the street. They could die. They're familiar with death being so. So the virus didn't really uh, create that much anxiety for most people. There was another part of the population, though, who saw the virus um, in many different lights. Many were particularly those who are paranoid, who think the CIA may be watching them, or FBI saw this as another government intervention, and others were just very frightened because they live in such high anxiety. So the reactions were a range across the board from not at all to very, very anxious. There was one man who um, I would share with you, actually is now in housing, and he made an interesting observation to me. He said that the silver lining in COVID is that now the large population, um, the large general population, will begin to understand how terribly isolating it is to be homeless. And he was simply looking at how he lived in that kind of isolation all the time. He felt alone, ignored by the system. When he was in the hospital, nobody visited, things like that. And now he was hearing the general population voice how awful it is to be like that. And he said, I hope everybody understand that's what we've been going through for years. Interesting response, huh? Yeah, that's really interesting. Just bringing you back on a point you mentioned earlier, you spoke a bit about health services that had to change or stop due to the, I guess, demands and capacity. During the last seven months, has there been any services that the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program um, have had to stop or, or just couldn't be continued? We had to, um, if not discontinue, we certainly had to curtail our regular face-to-face primary care visits. And many, many of the uh, preventive care measures we would generally take, like trying to get people to colonoscopies and different imaging and stuff like that, those were virtually impossible to do during the, the first wave of COVID when the hospital access was very shut down. And then we had to turn to all sorts of things. I take care of, I work on a team that takes care of people that live outside. Many of them have been on the streets for years and some have been placed in housing and we still visit them at home. We do home visits for them. So we had to curtail our home visits because we did not want to bring any virus into the homes of anyone else. And we would see people outside their homes, for example. Out on the streets, though, we would tend to do rounds when we could, but we had to cut those way back. And then um, we depend on our two hospital-based clinics. And the one at Mass General is primarily for our street folks. And that we had to shut down literally for two and a half months. And we had to sort of 
cope with not having access to all the things you can do inside a clinic with access to the laboratory and the imaging, et cetera. So we had to really learn a new way of approaching this during the serious part of the COVID pandemic. And have there been any positive changes that occurred during the COVID-19 pandemic for homeless people in Boston that you hope remain in place once the pandemic is over? I think many wonderful things, I think, have emerged from the pandemic, given that the overall it's been awful. But certainly it was another example that reminded me of the early days of the AIDS epidemic when we all realize that we're in this together and we have to work together. So from the hospitals across town all now working together, the laboratories working together, the state and the city public health departments working together, the city and the state being very, very avid partners. So the community spirit that was engendered by the response to COVID was really quite gratifying and I think will last well past the pandemic since we've all learned that we do things much better when we're all working together than when we try to do it individually. On the more mundane level or the more individual level, I think we've all learned that telemedicine has been on the back burner for a long time, but can be very, very effective in times when you can't do face-to-face things. And for a large number of our folks, particularly when we talk about behavioral health, the televisit or the telephone visit, if not a televisit, has proven a very, very effective way of staying in touch with our folks and doing what I think is probably relatively good care. The caveat to that, of course, is that so many have no access to Wi-Fi, internet, or to a smartphone. And so the challenge has been, if this is a good way to go, we don't want to exacerbate the disparity by doing our services for those who have those things and those who don't. So we work very hard with lots of partners trying to make sure people have access to phones and stuff like that. And I know that um, we have on our board of directors, we have several homeless people, and we often pass these things by them to see what they think. And they have expressed an interesting concern. They absolutely have loved having the availability of telemedicine during this COVID epidemic. But they said they really hope that even though that will last a little bit past, they hope that we'll get back to the face-to-face human touch version of healthcare because that has been very important in their lives. And it also is part of the routine of their lives, like a visit to the doctor or their healthcare team or to the dentist is really an important part of the everyday part of their life. So they don't want to lose that by staying at home and just being on the smartphone or on the iPad. But lots of good things will come from that. At the start of this podcast, you said that often when you meet homeless people, they'll tell you straight out what's wrong with policy or what's wrong with the services and why they're not working for them. Are there other things you could be done? You think could be done at a policy level to help produce health inequalities or health inequities among homeless people? Yes, that's a poignant and a very complicated question. But it certainly became clear that when you have a virus like this, to have four or five hundred people in an enclosed space, even a very nicely kept enclosed space, the virus is going to pass very fast. And if that's the only thing available to people, that really sets homeless people up for a real disadvantage. So I think one of the lessons from this is the way we approach sheltering in Boston, and we are very proud of the way shelters have been very much a part of the city's approach to homelessness for tens and tens of years. And Boston, unlike many other cities, actually has shelter beds for virtually everyone who wants one. So 90 or 95% of all unattached adults in Boston have a shelter bed, and only about 5% are on the streets. And you contrast that with some other cities, you know, like in LA, which is a city I'm fascinated by and would love to work in, about 75 or more percent of the people who are homeless there live on the streets and very few in shelters. So we have been very proud of the shelters and they have been truly life-preserving. We did a study, which you might have seen in JAMA Internal Medicine, 
where um, one of our staff, Jill Roncarati, who was a physician assistant, went on to do her doctorate in public health, looked at, along with Travis Baggett, who is one of our research director, looked at the street population and the mortality rates. And we have studies going back many years that show that people living in the shelters die about four times the rate of people of the same age who uh, live in housing in Boston and Massachusetts. But when we filtered out the street population, looked at their lives over 10 years, their mortality rates, we found that they were three times more likely to die than people living in shelters, or 10 to 12 times more likely to die than someone the same age in Massachusetts in housing. So the streets are particularly deadly and dangerous most of the time, and the shelters are life-preserving. But that, as we mentioned before, becomes transformed when it's a time of communicable diseases. And that's when you can see if a disease is truly communicable, particularly airborne, it's going to pass like wildfire inside a shelter setting, even when you do really good public health measures in the shelters. And as you know, the standard thing of keep six feet apart, wear a mask, which people have done, done a pretty good job of, washing hands frequently, but that keep feet apart in a shelter is virtually impossible. And washing your hands is very hard because there's probably only a handful of bathrooms available for four or 500 people. So frequent hand washing is very, very difficult, if not impossible to do. So I think we have learned that there are some systemic flaws in the way we've set up our system of caring for people who don't have homes. And of course, when you step back, the real solution to this is to have a safe home for everybody or a safe place for people to be. And I think that has become increasingly evident as we work our way through this pandemic. And hopefully this will generate a lot more interest in cities like Boston and others continuing to push for more and more very low-income housing to get people off the streets and out of the shelters. Right. And on a more uh, one-to-one level for physicians and trainees listening, uh, what do you think they could do during these times for homeless people to reduce health inequities? That's another very interesting question. First of all, I think being aware of how difficult it is for homeless people, for homeless populations, when there is a public health pandemic, just to be aware of that is really critical. People have no place to go. And finding creative solutions to that and being sympathetic to the fact that they can't just go home and isolate is really important. And we found that the medical and nursing communities and the social service community in Boston has really rallied behind that and been doing their best to make sure we have places for people to go. There will be an ongoing need for that, though, and I worry as the one surge goes away, trying to sustain those places can be very, very difficult. But that's what I would urge people to do. The other thing is to remember Maybe we can't do a lot of health care for these folks, but when they're isolated, they have no food. They have very little access to anything. So all of the donations of food to food banks, et cetera, et cetera, become absolutely critical during this time. And we're finding small food banks are getting overwhelmed now. So any way you can help support them during this pandemic, it would be most appreciated. And then finally, I worry a little bit about the pandemic is sort of highlighting for us one concern that I would love a larger discussion about, but we're taking care of people that have been homeless for many, many years. And when you talk about social determinants of their health or their ill health, those happened 40 years ago when the school systems failed them or the foster care system failed them, welfare system does, or corrections failed them, or poverty and racism changed the course of their lives and limited their opportunities. And we're seeing them now 30 and 40 years later. So we have been very hesitant in our program We're trying very hard to point out there are social determinants of health and then there are social needs. So the people we're seeing now need transportation, they desperately need food, 
and they need housing, they need things like that, but they aren't necessarily the social determinants of their health right now. They're the things they need desperately to be as healthy as they can. So we really urge everybody to, we need to work together. We need housing with a lot of services for folks. We need access to the type of care people need, access to dental care. It's very hard for homeless people to get to a dentist or get to um, have behavioral health care, psychiatric care. So all of those things are really desperately needed. Even though they don't fit into the category of social determinants of their health, they're really desperate needs, I think. So I welcome a robust discussion about how we as a society can look at the root causes of homelessness, which are the real determinants of our folks' health, which are let's fix the schools. I would say that education is probably one of the key things that needs to be fixed. We need to fix our correction system. And of course, overwhelmingly, we need to address income inequality, the awful social determinants that poverty determines, and then ultimately the racism and the structural biases in our system. So those are the things that I think are real social determinants, and we have to do everything we can to take care of the people that are victims of those. Absolutely. Great points made there. There's immediate kind of needs that these people need, and then the determinants, which often go back years or if not decades, which also need to be addressed also. So that wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults, the first in our inclusivity and medicine series. I'd like to thank Dr. Jim O'Connell for joining us today in our discussion about the challenges faced by people who are homeless during the COVID-19 pandemic. Our production team here at NEGM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Cassie Stern. Special thanks also to our NEGM education editor, Dr. O.P. Hamzik. If you have any feedback, questions, or suggestions for future podcast topics, please email us at resident360 at negm.org. Remember to subscribe to our social media sites, including Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook via the negm.org pages. On behalf of the New England Journal of Medicine, this is James O'Connell signing off.